Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. I think that for the quite foreseeable future, the business case for hydrogen will primarily be for the big users. And and given that's true, I think that centralized production of hydrogen makes more sense. Because I think that just fundamentally, to use hydrogen as a fuel, so to so go from electricity to hydrogen and from hydrogen to electricity, it's just incredibly inefficient. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged, a podcast by Aurora Energy Research. I'm Alexander Esser, and I've been with Aurora for five years and lead our expansion into the Nordics. I'm extremely excited about today's conversation. I'll be speaking with a guest who's the head of strategy and member of the group management of the largest generator of zero carbon electricity in the Nordics. He's also chairman of a joint venture producing green steel. My guest on the show is Andreas Regnell from Vattenfall. Welcome, Andreas. Thanks a lot. Thank you. By the way, of broader background, Andrea has been at the strategy department of Vattenfall for 10 years, which he's now leading. Prior, he was managing partner for the Nordics at BCG. He was banker earlier in his career and holds a degree in economics. He also loves triathlon and runs the Ironman. So, Andreas, what was your personal journey in the power sector? As you mentioned, I worked uh, as a consultant for quite some years and there was some uh, scattered projects there. Uh, so the real journey within the energy industry did not start until I joined Vattenfall 10 years ago. All right. And uh, wh- where did you draw your, your inspiration to, to enter the, the power sector during this time? I think that uh, one of the things that um, it's, it's always interesting to be in a place, a happening place, if you want. And, and it was very clear to me Uh, that the energy sector would be, and it has always been, but it would be even more of a of a place where, where with strong change and transformation, and and that's why why I thought that uh, joining Vattenfall when the opportunity arose was was a very interesting step to take. So uh, and and uh, of course, reality exceeded expectations by a factor of 10 or so, uh, because we all know that uh, 10 years ago we could no way have foreseen the dramatic uh, how dramatic it actually became the change yes and i think vattenfall is definitely one of the most interesting companies for for such a transformation i mean it's an it's an energy provider owned by the swedish state it underwent the first transformation already back in the 90s when it became international with activities across europe now it undergoes the second transformation by decarbonizing its power generation so, Andreas, um, on, on the Vattenfall homepage, I read that Vattenfall wants to enable fossil-free living within one generation. What specifically does that mean? The purpose of the purpose, if you want, is that to set out a very clear direction. Um, rather than saying a specific year and exactly how, it's really our, our 
clear ambition of, of, of that direction. And I think it served us extremely well because everything we do must fit that purpose. And, and, uh, and we like, talking about transformation, when I joined Butterfall 10 years ago, we were still one of the biggest owners of Lignite in Europe. So, so it, it, we also need to remember how Butterfall has transformed and having such a very clear and ambitious purpose has, has helped us tremendously in, in aligning the organization and, 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 uh, and creating an engagement in, our, in the organization. So now we, we're very proud of the engagement levels we have. And of course, it's not only because of our purpose, but I think there is a, is a significant building block in, in creating that drive in, in, the, in the organization. Yeah. But, but setting this really clear purpose and, and targeting zero emissions, was it easier for, for state-owned companies like Vattenfall? A, a very good question. I, I think it's, it's never easy uh, for organization to make a 100-degree turn. Uh, and, and why I say 100-degree turn, that I remember 10 years ago, there was a, we have formulated what was then, when I came in, that we had a new strategic direction. And at the time that the new strategic direction, one of the components of what that, that we would not inv invest more in coal. And that was a major step not to invest more in coal uh, 10 years ago. And, and, and we all know how fast things have gone uh, since then. Um, but I would say that the, the, our owner, uh, the Swedish state, uh, we run like any other company. So it doesn't make any difference. The difference, I think, one could point out is that the Swedish owner has always been quite ambitious in terms of, of sustainability and climate. So if anything, it made it slightly easier because we got a very strong support. Uh, you can even, some would argue, push from the owner to make that transformation and formulate those type of objectives. And, and, the, and the purpose is, of course, something that, that the owner is incredibly happy about. Yeah, yeah. But how, how can we imagine uh, are those decisions actually made? So, I mean, you mentioned uh, 10 years ago not to invest in, in further coal assets. Then we had the divestment from Lignite in, in Germany. More recently also in Germany, a uh, decision to close down a, a hard coal plant. So is this a government decree or a board decision as we have in, have in public companies or a negotiation be between both of them? Formally, it, it's in the end the board decisions, the big decision, the, the big decision. But that's just formally. I think uh, uh, one could write a book about decision making in large corporations, uh, and and I have something I call a critical mass of conviction, uh, which is uh, so. So you need some sort of a process within a big organism like Vattenfall, so that there is enough belief in a certain direction because you can there will be there you will find people within Vattenfall that 10 years ago said that we should go out of all of all coal we owned uh, but you would would have found many more people saying that we cannot do that because it's providing all of our cash flows and and, and so it's, a, it's it's really the trick is to make that that decision making the corporate decision making process as fast as possible and of course an important factor is the CEO uh, and and the top leadership how 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 progressive they are and how much they dare to push questions that they don't necessarily have anchored in all the levels below. Uh, but I would say that, so the owner directive for us was a component. Uh, the, 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 um, the heritage in the Swedish system where we had actually uh, a relatively fossil-free system already at the outset, all those components together made us 
mature to take take the decision to formulate the purpose about four or five years ago. So uh, formally, yes, it's the board of directors. In reality, it's a, it's a corporate process uh, that takes years to go through if you want a big corporate to take a, make a 180 degree turn. I mean, we can see what the oil majors are doing right now. They are where we were um, a few, uh, well, I would say six, seven years ago that they there are, I'm sure you will find people in the oil majors that say we have to go out of oil as fast as we possibly can because they will just be stranded assets. Uh, and before, when everyone understands that, they will for sure be stranded assets. So we need to move faster than everyone else. That's the way to get as much value out of our existing assets possible. There will be people saying that. There will be other people saying, no way, we cannot do that because they are providing all of our cash and the returns of the new assets are just so low. The equation doesn't really work. So we have to go slowly. And I'm not saying that any of them are right, but that I can promise that that discussion already exists. And 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 the, the future will tell us how far some of the companies will go far, faster and some will go slower. Um, so and, and, and you can go through, I mean, the media industry went through that. 15 years ago so so it's something and and it, it's difficult to make it fast until unless you if you're an incumbent mm-hmm. yeah but that's what exactly what i wanted to pick up the the oil the oil majors uh, such as bp or shell with with no uh, government involvement i mean they're missing this component that could could be a reason why they had in the past a more difficult time to also to commit to to such such ambitious, ambitious uh, decarbonization targets but I think the financial market uh, is ambitious, not necessarily because of a kind of a conviction to save the world. Some of it is, has that conviction too. It's just that they're very rational and they, and they essentially think forward and say, wait a minute, if we own this share and there will be kind of a negative, and we all know Gordon's growth formula, if you, if you change the, the growth part of it, the, the, the multiple of the stock goes down relatively fast. So, so I think even though they're not government-owned, I think the shareholders and the large fund, investment funds out there might be just as ambitious uh, mm. and as the government or has just as much pushing effect as the government's, but from a slightly different underlying reason, but it's in the same direction. Yeah, and replace replace this kind of component that they're missing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, we talked a lot about uh, the transition to, to fossil fuel power, but with a net zero system in mind, this is not enough, just simply because there are quite a few areas that cannot be decarbonized by, by green electricity. So let's talk about hydrogen. And uh, I know you guys were really ahead of your game. You were active in the space already for many years. So I remember uh, Mark Nussal, your former CEO at, at our Spring Forum in 2018, already talking about steel from hydrogen so what's Vattenfall's activity in the hydrogen space uh, they, they are manifold and but uh, the one that most people know about is the what you're just referring to which is the hybrid uh, joint venture between Vattenfall LKAB a state-owned mining company and SSAB uh, a leading Swedish steel company specialist steel uh, company and uh, what we are aiming for is to do the f- world's first uh, completely fossil-free steel or iron reduction uh, system uh, or production process that in the end will, uh, when once we've addressed the whole value chain, we'll have fossil-free steel, but this is the most emitting part, which is the iron reduction, uh, iron ore reduction process that is today made in blast furnaces that we will then do, instead of using coke, we will use hydrogen 
And if you take hydrogen and combine with oxygen in the iron ore, you get water instead of uh, carbon dioxide, which you get today using uh, coke. So, so uh, we have a, developed a pilot plant, a pretty big building actually at, that you can see in Lulu if you fly in there. Uh, it's 65 meters high and we've just managed to um, get our first successful trials uh, in, in that pilot plant. We're still using um, natural gas because just to calibrate the plant, but later this spring, we will start the trials with, with uh, pure hydrogen. Mm, okay, okay. I, I want to come to back to the, to the technical details of, of, of the setup and of the hydrogen economy in a bit. But maybe taking a step back, you, uh, you, you have this prototype now already going. So it means a few years ago, you already made the decision to, to enter the hydrogen space Uh, long before uh, others actually thought about it. So was it hard to make this decision, uh, let's say, five, six years ago? It, it wasn't. I mean, and, and to be fair, the, the initiative came from the steel company, SSAB, and the head of R&D there, Martin Pei, that convinced his CEO, Martin Lindqvist, that uh, if we want to be in the steel industry, and, and that's what we do, uh, and, and uh, to be... For there to be a steel industry in 2050, we need to have fossil-free steel, and and then we need to do this uh, essentially. So, and I would say it's uh, coming back to the decision making, corporate decision making. I think it's uh, it, it's it's um, sometimes refer to it, the, the difference between the backcasting and a forecasting uh, perspective. Uh, if you do forecasting, you stand today, uh, you see a, a, a goal somewhere there, but you you are you're restricted by all the, of the realities of today. You have a balance sheet, you have a CFO that says you have to reach your targets, you have to business cases to be able to get your investment funds and, 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 and just that you're also kind of, you, your reference is what has been possible previously. So, and then you put together a plan and, and uh, it's typically quite ambitious and, and you reach a certain trajectory. If you, on the other hand, Put yourself to where you need to be, which in this case is climate neutrality by 2050, and then you figure out what you need to do today to get to that point. And that's what I call backcasting. You get to a very different trajectory, uh, mm -hmm. given how how urgent things are. So and and so I think that's a bit where 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 in this case then uh, the, the senior management of, of SSAB they put themselves in a backcasting shoes and they say. Okay, we're in the steel industry. We want to stay in the steel industry, and and it's obvious that where the world is going, and if we need fossil free steel by 2050, so how do we do that? And then they came up with this idea. They contacted SSA, LKB, and Vattenfall, and we were quite keen to join them. It's very exciting, but I'm I mean at the time, I wouldn't say that we were made fun of, but almost there was a kind of a crazy idea. Yeah, suits. I can imagine it probably was yeah, not yeah. part of any forecasts in in, uh, that in was any... for sure, <laughs> for sure, not part of any forecast. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then so so we then and and that's of course the challenge for anyone that starts that journey on on uh, the, if you want the backcasting journey because you will do things that all the forecasters think is crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. and and I think on that note, I think what Europe did in 2020 was to go from forecasting to backcasting, because I think that Green Deal is the manifestation of that change. Because yeah. the Green Deal, is the, it really takes the uh, backcasting perspective. We need to be somewhere by 2050, 
and what do we then need to do today? And I don't know how many of you that have really read through the Green Deal, but it's on the one hand, you get completely exhausted by by all the things that that is in that Green Deal and all the things you have to essentially fix. On the other hand, when you when you read it through, at least I think that you get the impression that it is actually well thought through, that we, it, there is no way around it. We have to do all that. Uh, and, 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 and once you take that as the, as the reality and start working on it, suddenly you do different things. So, so I happen to believe that it's incredibly commercial uh, and the most strategically kind of best way to go forward is to put yourself in a backcasting mode. Yeah. And then you might do some sort of reality checks, but, but it, it, I mean, as soon as you're convinced that somehow the world must reach climate neutrality uh, with some bumps in the road, then the only way you can do is to take that perspective and look and 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 and, and do backcasting rather than forecasting. And because I think the number of if you if you uh, as one criteria the the amount of billions of impaired assets I think will actually be higher for the forecasters than for the backcasters because the mm -hmm. backcasters will have time to adjust. The forecasters will not have time to adjust once reality is hitting them. Because the problem is that the backcasters hit into the question of impairment much earlier than the forecasters. But the end result will be much worse for the, and that's part of the, again, part of the, I think, the, the, this corporate decision making or critical mass of conviction, that if you start taking the backcasting perspective, it gets really scary. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And it also has a huge implication on uh, what is the lifetime to assume for exactly. any kind of investment in fossil technology. So exactly. if you build a gas-fired CHP or also like in, in, in your personal life, buy a, buy a diesel-fueled car, like what is the lifetime, lifetime expectancy you can actually still run this kind of asset? What the example you just brought up, the private car, I think is the most obvious example of... of The forecasting versus backcasting in in kind of in close to you as an individual. Mm -hmm. um, maybe now coming coming back to the to the to the hybrid um, uh, prototype. So it's quite interesting to see that it's actually on site at industry that it's uh, next to the SSRB um, uh, uh, iron reduction unit. Uh, we also observe uh, uh, other setups like that. So. I saw that you're, you're planning to build a electrolyzer in the Hamburg Harbor. Uh, so is that the future to have actually green production next to the off-taker, next to industry? Uh, um, and is it superior to, to decentral production or a production close to the supply centers? I, I, I mean, and that's a million dollar question. But I, <laughs> if you ask me today, I would say yes. Because, I mean, in, in, in essence, is it, is it cheaper to move around electrons or or molecules uh, uh, cheaper and, and easier uh, and, and 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 going back to depends a bit if you have a very decentralized use because if you have a very decentralized use it might make sense to have a decentralized production because then you need a network like the electricity network however if my view is that the majority of the uh, hydrogen molecules that we will be using are in those use cases where you where you actually need hydrogen, the molecule, 
So, or if, so for example, the steel industry, the refinery industry, the, uh, <clears throat> the chemical industry, and all of those, they, they can't do without hydrogen. Uh, they already, I mean, if you look at the refiner and the chemical, they already use hydrogen. They just need to switch from natural gas-based hydrogen to green or fossil-free hydrogen, um, which is a huge change or in a huge electricity need to just to meet that. And then you add electricity, sorry, the steel on that. So given that I think that for the quite foreseeable future, the business case for hydrogen will primarily be for the big users. And, and given that's true, I think that centralized production of hydrogen makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- uh, because I think that just fundamentally to use hydrogen as a fuel, so to so go from electricity to hydrogen and hydrogen to electricity, it's just incredibly inefficient. Uh, so anything that you can direct, that you can electrify directly rather than going via hydrogen, you will electrify directly. Yeah, and, and it goes through the same thing. If you can if you can heat something with electricity, uh, and, and nowadays you can go to a thousand degrees. So today at the and, and that continuously developing. So today if you need something to be fifteen hundred degrees, it's a bit difficult to do it with, with, with electricity, especially if it's large volume. So then you need to essentially burn something instead. But if you then have that as a case, you get the 20 I mean, you get an incredible loss of efficiency if you go via electricity to hydrogen and then burn it again uh, so so the, the the value in developing technologies where you can electrify directly is enormous but that was a long answer to yes i believe <laughs> centralized production because i believe there will be primarily be centralized consumption yeah, that's a, that's a very clear statement. And I, I think that also will have an implication on hydrogen imports, also, let's say, uh, European or even global trade off of hydrogen, because what I often think about is also the competition between uh, blue and green hydrogen, especially in the Scandinavian context, with having Norway as a direct neighbor to Sweden, uh, with likely available blue hydrogen at a, at a cheaper price than green. So uh, how, how do you see that? Is that is that going to be a competition from 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 blue hydrogen, uh, or does the argument that there will will not be much uh, transportation of hydrogen uh, speak against it already? I mean, even if you believe in centralized production and consumption, you could, if you have like a, a big consumption hub, you can still make you can t- still, in theory, transport hydrogen, but but it would still not be in a very decentralized way. It would be kind of big big freight routes routes yeah, from, from uh, a to the, b just from, from yeah exactly yeah, yeah, from northern yeah, light to to lulio yeah exactly uh however i do believe that um uh, the jury is really out on blue hydrogen and and I, I i really don't know what the answer will be whether it will be accepted uh because ccs i mean uh, nuclear is a bit emotional uh, but i think that the s in ccs it's almost as emotional. So, so I, I just don't know where we will end up on that uh, because I do think that you're right that blue hydrogen will be has cost advantages versus uh, at least green hydrogen. Uh, it has to do with logistics and stuff, but, but I think it's quite likely that, that blue hydrogen will have uh, cost advantages in certain situations and will it then be accepted or not? Mm-hmm. And and then another so so for example if you all the I mean if you think about how the 
European energy system will need to be uh, reach the security supply level it, it wants to reach or to keep essentially the level it has today. We'd, one way or the other, you need flex. And the question is, will that flex then be batteries? Difficult to, because you actually need energy and flex. It's not only flex. Um, and you need so high number of megawatts that batteries are probably just going to be too expensive. Um, storage, maybe other types of storage, maybe. So, but, but I think at least today it's hard to foresee that you, a system where you don't need a significant number of some sort of CG, CCGTs. And then the question is, will you then do CCS at the source in the Norwegian oil uh, gas fields, or will you do CCS at the site of the gas turbine? So that you, and then, so will you deposit the, C, the CO2 straight at the source once you, when you take the gas up from the from underground, or will you freight natural gas in existing infrastructure with existing yeah, ships and and unknown technology, and then do CCS at the at the production site, the CCGT, and then brought bring the CO2 back to to Norway. Or will you not do CCS at all? Because mm. if you don't need to do can do CCS at all, then you need to yeah you need some technology development, or you need to live with a very high cost of first making electricity and then do hydrogen. And and the heating sector, it's just difficult to see how you can charge so much to the customers. That you would need to, if you want to take that route, but jury's out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's a very interesting comparison. I mean, there are, there's probably one chemical uh, component to it. Uh, if it's if it's cheaper to to capture the CO2 before the combustion or after the combustion, I think there uh, we we have a clear picture. But I think once once green hydrogen really enters the market, uh, then uh, this uh, this whole Dynamics will change anyway, and especially if, if if green hydrogen becomes down to the same price level as blue hydrogen. Yeah, but every year that the gas fields can produce is a kind of a good year. <laughs> so <laughs> so even if it's not even if blue hydrogen is not the solution that would be there forever, I'm sure that there will be strong uh, economic interest to uh, add if you want ten years on their lifetime. Yeah. But I assume, uh, going coming back to to hybrid, uh, such a prototype requires state support. So how does this work at the moment, and is that actually also uh, a concept for other European jurisdictions? Yes, I clearly think so. I mean, to be clear, the financing to date has only only been of the pilot plant, and that is about uh, so far about 150 million euro, and. Uh, a bit simplified, we paid uh, the, the, the uh, SSAB, LKB and Vattenfall, we put in one th quarter each, and then the government has supported us with one quarter. So it's uh, like a CapEx support? Yeah, it's a CapEx support, uh, okay. primarily, but it's actually, I mean, it's the, the one and a half is CapEx and OPEX, but the big piece is CapEx. But So they, they essentially supported with one quarter. And then when we talk about the next step, the, a, a demo plant, then we talk about the billion euro plus. And then, uh, I mean, there are diff many different potential sources of support, but it's very clear that we that there is a need for support because it's a, it's a big uh, technical development part of scaling it up. Uh, and um, 
yeah, there are many risks associated with it. And, and uh, just as an example, the electrolyzers that we need to buy will still be in the very early phase of the scale curve. So, uh, so, so they will essentially we will need to buy, relatively speaking, uh, expensive electrolyzers. And then a few years down the road, they will be much cheaper. So anyone that builds this plant, a second plant or a third plant, will have significantly lower capex. And we kind of know that. Uh, and, and to be then competitive, uh, because this the first demo plant will be a, kind of a commercial size, we need to support for that as well. So there are many reasons why there is a need to support. Uh, but, of course, the, the, the initiative will also put in money. So it's not like we, we will not invest, but the, the need, because it's meant, the whole idea is to make it into a combined learning journey, but then also at the end of the learning, a couple of maybe a year or two after commissioning, it will be a fully commercial plant and then it should be kind of run on its own merits. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I read from the, from the big plant. So on, on the on the homepage, uh, uh, it says, if successful, hybrid means that together we can reduce Sweden's CO2 emissions by 10% and Finland's by 7%. So that really means that then the whole steel sector in both of those countries runs on, on such a, on such yeah, a yeah. concept. Okay. Yeah, and 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 related to hybrid, uh, the the mining company LKAB, uh, they they of course export even more iron ore than than only to SSAB. So they have announced that they want to make take kind of a step forward in the value chain, um, and and actually make all of their current iron ore and export it instead of as exported as pellets that they do today, which is essentially yeah iron ore uh, in a different format into iron sponge instead. So taking the, having done the reduction step in Nordics and then taking one step further in the value chain and then export those, that iron sponge or HBI to uh, electric arc furnaces then across primarily Europe. And that would be then taking out much more CO2 than only more CO2 than Sweden's combined CO2 today. <laughs> wow yeah that's because that's it, a... <laughs> because essentially non kind of taking out emissions from blast furnaces currently standing outside of sweden okay okay well, those are ambitious plans so uh, uh good luck with that um just just to wrap up i i want to come to our section overrated or underrated uh so i don't want to miss out on the opportunity to ask you on a few concepts in the energy transition some we have already touched upon some are new so uh, i will ask you now if you think those concepts are over overrated or underrated uh, don't feel the pressure to elaborate on your response uh, short answers are, are the best so the first concept is the role of battery electric vehicles in providing flexibility to the power grid do you think this concept is overrated or underrated overrated overrated <laughs> The second concept, hydrogen as a transport fuel. Overrated. <laughs> we, we had this already, yeah. <laughs> that, that is also aligned with uh, the, the analysis that, that we do, at least for, for the personal transport. Um, third yes. concept, hydrogen converted back into electricity. Overrated or underrated? Super overrated. <laughs> Super overrated. <laughs> okay. Okay, so, so you don't see any chance for a uh, CCGT uh, running on on uh, on hydrogen or on synthetic methane to provide uh, low carbon dispatchable power. 
I, I do see any chance, but that's not where the debate is today. Yeah. Yeah. The debate is as if it's the savior of, of flex in Europe and yeah. that I do not believe in. So, yeah. so it's, it's given where I believe the debate is. I will, I'm sure there will be few peak hours being done that way, but so that, so it's not non-existent. It's just overrated. Yeah, yeah, it's just for 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 really the peaking hours where where really high um, uh, short run margin costs don't really play a role. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my last concept: energy companies setting zero emission targets. Underrated yet? Underrated yet? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's. I think that's a natural time to 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 wrap up. Um, we are really going to be watching uh, your progress. Uh, I think it will have huge implications for the Nordics, for Germany, but also for, for the rest of Europe. So, uh, Andreas, uh, thank you so much for today. Stortak for you, Dark. And uh, hopefully uh, speak to you soon. Thanks. Uh, really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot, Alexander. Hello. Hello. That was Alexander Esser, who leads Aurora's expansion into the Nordics, speaking to Andreas Regnell, Senior Vice President, Head of Strategic Development at Vattenfall. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.